You're listening to the Real Estate of Things podcast. Welcome to the Real Estate of Things podcast. I'm your host, Dalton Elliott. I'm joined by a very special guest and a very dear friend today, Mr. Nate Tronfio, the Chief Revenue Officer at Lima One Capital. Nate, thank you for joining. Likewise, man. Like you said, it's uh, it's always great to be a part of this awesome podcast and representation of Lima One in our industry and real estate investing and all the things that you do for the numerous communities that you touch. So I'm just blessed and honored to be here with you, my very good friend. You're too, too kind. Uh, you've, you've worn a lot of hats in this space, right? The private lending world. Uh, to walk me through kind of your journey, getting into the space and your background before up through getting to Lima One Capital. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been in all things sort of financial services, mainly lending mortgages, um, since around the, the middle of the great financial crisis. Um, so it was in residential mortgage lending, went from a producer, you know, loan officer to a manager. And that's where I sort of got my foray into the continued student to leadership that I still am today. Um, and took a little bit of a foray uh, after being in the residential mortgage lending space of six or seven years. Uh, went into the what I like to call the wild, wild west of merchant cash advance lending, which was just a great, unique perspective on how to look at you know making good credit decisions and uh, you know helped run some sales and operations for some firms there. And then I found my happy home in all things private lending. Um, around about uh, 2018, end of 2017, and um, never gone anywhere else. This is just uh, my passion from so many angles, uh, you know, brings in the mortgage and lending element. Uh, but I'm extremely passionate in all things real estate investing. Uh, over the last couple of years, I've been a wannabe investor, meaning I've had a couple rental properties. I flipped a small couple of homes. It is nothing to write home about. And I am sticking focused on my absolute main job and passion uh, in this world. Uh, I'll leave that to all of our great customers to do all the, all the real investing. Um, but it's, I really went into that just because I love our client base. I love our community uh, of investors, of lenders. Um, and so I've, I've been in this space for a little bit, um, helped run uh, a, a balance sheet debt fund prior to Lima One Capital. I've been at Lima One Capital now for uh, a, little, a little less than three years. Um, but man, what a great, uh, community, what a great organization, what a great culture we have. And I'm just blessed, uh, to help run, uh, our, our sales team, uh, with you and other great leaders that we have and, uh, be a part of our executive team and helping lead strategy and vision for the company and just throw my hat in the ring where I needed and, you know, playing the janitor, uh, along the way, if, if, uh, if some things need to be cleaned up. I love it. I love it. That's a, that's a really good, uh, overview of. Of what you do, uh, I want to. You mentioned customers, like our customer base, and our customer base is incredibly diverse. You touched on fix and flips, like rehab projects. You touched on rentals. You know, we also finance new construction. We finance multifamily. Uh, so really, a, a massive tent, and you have a really good kind of broad strokes finger on the pulse of what's going on in the market, and especially from. You know, not just a lender's perspective, but from an operator's perspective as well. So, what about we unpack sort of where we are now and where we're heading as we start off 2023? Let's unpack that through the lens of kind of our different product sets and different investors. So, I think it's always good to kick it off with uh, with the base product, kind of the the core foundation, what we started the firm with, which is the rehab product. So, what are you seeing there? We've seen 
you know, we're, we're here in mid-January and, and we've seen maybe some positive relief on the pricing side, but is it too too quick to call and jump up and down for joy? But, you know, what, what are you seeing on that side of the fence? Yeah, look, there's a lot going on in the market. And um, I think I'm the one that's going to coin this, although I'm sure it won't gain much traction. But uh, I have deemed 20, the year of 2023 uh, the year of who the heck knows what's going to happen. <laughs> um, you know, when you look at different talking heads or publications or data aggregators, I mean, whether you look at their prediction on interest rates, their prediction on home prices, their home, their prediction on transactions, on rents, on on flipping, it's all over the board. I mean, you're seeing these deltas from, you know, the likes of, you know, call it, uh, you know, Fannie Mae makes a prediction that the housing market goes down a couple, uh, a couple percent. And you have other other entities, you know, maybe on the, the real estate side, thinking that the market goes up 5%. And you get others that are very uh, bearish that think it's going to go down 10 to 20%. So, like, I don't know that we've ever been in a time that I know of uh, in my, uh, you know, non-illustrious career here that there's just been so much speculation and diversity of opinion on what's going to happen in this upcoming 12 months. So back to your question at hand, you know, with, with fix and flipping, I mean, man, what a great run um, this investment strategy's had over the last number of years. You know, I, I also just shout out to our private lending industry and our peers within it. They're not competitors of ours. I mean, technically they are, but they're really our peers. Um, you know, as we've helped to bring some liquidity to the marketplace, we've helped to bring new entrants to the marketplace. And a lot of that's also just because of the institutional backing behind us from Wall Street, uh, really opening their mind to seeing value in the need for this product uh, for real estate investors and the, the value that they bring to the marketplace. And fix and flipping is great because you know, they're most of the time taking distressed assets that you know, people wouldn't normally want to live in in their conditions outside of maybe the people that are already living in it and helping to gentrify, revitalize uh, communities and neighborhoods. And a lot of that's been done over the last number of years. You know, We've seen it to all-time peaks of, of fix and flip uh, numbers. We've seen peaks in, um, in profit margins off of it, uh, the shortest uh, time cycles from acquisition to disposition of a fix and flip throughout the last five years. But those things are all changing right now. You know, margins on fix and flips are uh, significantly lower than they were uh, over the last number of years. Timeframes to complete a fix and flip has completely gapped out and elongated. A lot of that's been from, you know, things of supply chain challenges through the pandemic or labor shortages uh, from the pandemic timeframe uh, as well. And so, you know, the all in all summary is it's just harder to execute in the fix and flip space. You know, you brought this up. I think we in, in lending, uh, lending and private lending that service real estate investors, really, we should be focused on what our clientele needs because it's very different than the transactional residential mortgage world. Like we're here to provide solutions for real estate investors to successfully profit, grow generational wealth in a number of investment strategies. And so if we don't understand what our clients need, then we're going to have a hard time staying in business and providing value to them. And I bring that up because it's harder and harder now. You know, Capital markets behind us as lenders has changed. It's caused us to change some leverages, change some pricing. It's all in tune with what's happening in other lending aspects, you know, non-related to real estate lending as well. But it's just making things harder. So, you know, Fix and flippers are dealing with it being harder to, you know, get through their projects. It's been extremely hard to find good product <laughs> over the last number of years uh, just because of supply and demand and inventory and things like that. So that trend's always been tough in, in recent uh, past, but it's not getting any easier. 
And then in, in another summary, uh, one thing that in, in having a number of conversations with our borrowers and just dear friends of mine that are big operators uh, in, this, in, in fix and flip investment strategies, a lot of them are intentionally pulling back because nobody really knows, again, what's going to happen with the real estate market. You know, uh, prices have started to cool off and a number of other facts there. But, you know, fix and flip doesn't happen as much as people want to when they watch it on HGTV in a month or two. It takes, you know, a number of months. And great operators are flipping properties three to six month time frame. But the reality is most people are in the six to 12 month time frame or even even longer. And so when you buy a property today with the, an expected uh, after repair value uh, of a couple months from now or six to 12 months from now, you don't know what those values are going to be. You start to say, hey, maybe we shouldn't buy what we were buying before. And that's what you're seeing from the very sophisticated and educated operators. A lot of them have been selling off anything they can, stacking chips and cash, slowing down to make sure that they're really tight on what they buy because in fix and flipping, you make your money on the buy. Um, and, and so we're seeing a little bit of less transacting from, from many of the sort of, as we call them, like higher tier operators. And then on the other side of the spectrum, more of the newer entrants to fix and flipping, people are starting to do the first few deals, which there's been more new entrants to doing fix and flips in the last number of years than almost ever before. And a lot of it's just because there's more access to liquidity and there's more you know, focus on it and talks throughout um, a number of realms. And so what we're seeing is that a lot of people with less experience that don't have the infrastructure that the top operators do in marketing and uh, acquisitions and disposition teams and construction management um, or project management folk, they don't have that you know infrastructure to be able to make sure they're doing good deals and executing on their deals right now. So we're seeing a lot of the less experienced operators, you know, really run into this the challenge that fix and flipping is not predictable. Um, you know, you almost always come in with some variance in what you think your budget's going to be. Before, when you know home prices were appreciating. You could have this variance in what your uh, construction budget would be because by the time you got through the project, your home appreciated five, ten percent, and you gained, you know, what you lost in the over uh, the cost overrun of your rehab. And so, you know, you're just seeing a people that aren't doing as many frequent deals and don't have that infrastructure realizing it's a lot harder than it's been uh, because of all these factors. And I think another interesting stat is I don't know the specifics on it, but from what I recall. The amount of people that do their first fix and flip and never do another one, because of memory, I'm going to say it's more than 50% of them never do another deal. I want to say it's 70 plus percent, but regardless, 50 or 70, it's a large portion. Um, and I think you're going to see more of that. So in summary of this long-winded, uh, you know, tout on, on all things fix and flipping from my perspective, unfortunately, I, we started to see what I call the separation of the wealth gap and flipping to where... The top operators are going to continue to be strong and get stronger, and the newer entrants and less experienced fix and flippers are going to have a harder time continuing to grow. And there's been plenty of great stories that we see and have, and we're very proud of at Lima One to have over the last two, three, four, five years do somebody's first fix and flip, and now look at our relationship and partnership with them where they're doing 50, 100 deals a year, and it's like, holy smokes, that was really cool to be a small piece of helping this operator grow their business and create wealth for themselves, their family, and their communities. Um, you know, the unfortunate reality is that I think it's going to be less people that are going to be able to grow through scale of that. But there's plenty of exceptions to that norm. And again, I know I went pretty long-winded there, but hopefully covered a lot of bases because there's a lot going on in the market, and there's not a ton of tailwinds for fix and flipping right now. But with that said, there is still a ton of inventory 
or a ton of opportunity, really not a ton of inventory, unfortunately. There's a ton of opportunity. And if or as distress hits the market, um, you're going to see more buying opportunities. It's just a matter of who's going to be able to transact and execute uh, and want to be in the game. Is I just don't think it's as many people as it's been in the game in the last number of years. It's really helped uh, get the right limelight on real estate investment, get the right limelight on private lending who helps finance and, and help them grow. Um, but we're still going to be here and real estate investors are still going to be there. It's still going to be a big portion of uh, total transactions, but it may it may drop off a little bit comparatively to what it's been. Yeah, we, we've seen that in the space as a lender. And the same thing is true, like you said, in the, the operator side of the fence that you know high stress can clear a lot of the deck with what's going on. Uh, and, and it just makes sense. You have more uncertainty that creates, uh, like you said, less less entrance into the space, just more overall, more cautious environment. Uh, but con- new construction and, and fix and flip both fall into a similar realm in that they're you know usually looking at short term financing, want to get as quick of a disposition as possible. I'm not looking for you know long term strategy there. But in the new construction world, we still have, you know, we're still underbuilding. Uh, we have a lack of inventory uh, that continues to persist. That was uh, present before COVID. You know, arguably the lack of inventory is something that really helped keep housing strong from a price standpoint during the tumultuous time. Uh, but yeah, rates going up. Materials costs haven't really come down materially, except for probably uh, lumber, which has normalized. Uh, labor prices have not come down for sure. Labor costs. Uh, so where where are folks in the the new construction space right now from an operator standpoint? Yeah, uh, do my best to speak to it. But again, just another area of passion and a lot of really dear friends that I always go to who are operators who are you know running great organizations, building a number of homes, whether for rent. Uh, spec for sale. Uh, now more people are shifting to uh, away from spec because um, you know speculative building is assuming that you're going to sell the property after it's built and not pre-sell it and lock in on a on an exit price. And that was absolutely the move and the trend that we saw over the last couple of years. When again, home price appreciation kept going up, so a builder didn't want to lock in on a pre-sold price up front. You know they were better off going four, five, six months getting to a latter stage of the build and then looking to list and, and sell its spec. And we filled that, we're just very proud to help fill that void as we financed a, a lot of builders in spec because banks don't always accommodate that as much as we do. Um, but you're seeing that trend and shift. So that's certainly one thing that we're seeing from a lot of builders is that they're moving away from spec builds. They're moving back to what's been more of the historical norm of pre-selling most of their uh, their product before it starts you know, going in the ground and building up. You know, that does mean for builders that typically you need to build out a different realm of infrastructure to to your organization around the marketing aspect of it, because you need to start marketing your homes pre-building uh, as opposed to when you're doing spec, you're typically starting to market your, your property later. So that means you may need to add more people on the marketing side. You may need more relationships with realtors uh, to lock in those pre-solds up front. I think the other, a number of other trends, but I'll, I'll try to limit it to just the main salient points here, you know. What what's often not realized is that the duration of time to go full cycle build is longer than anybody ever wants to admit. No different than what I said about fix and flippers who always say, "Hey, we're going to flip this property in four months," and then eight months later, you're like, "Hey, what happened?" You're like, "Oh, this that supply chain labor 
fired a contractor, permits, this and like it happens. But with building, you know, it depends on your model of build, but anybody that is building in scale right now or building communities, I should say anybody that's building communities, typically there is now a, a development element, an A and D element. And so to get through entitlement, permitting, and then all the components of that takes a substantial amount of time. And then you need to go in the ground, up the ground, up above the ground and go vertical. Uh, then, you know, whether you're building for rent, you have that strategy or you're building a for sale community to go full cycle on a deal that was taken from development to build. I mean, it's going to be, I mean, shoot, probably being a little aggressive, but 18 to 24 months, you could say 12 to 24 months, but realistically it's probably 18 to 36 months realistically. So if we're saying that we don't know what prices are going to be, you know, I'm calling it the year of who knows what the heck's going to happen this year. And it takes somebody 18 to 36 months to go full cycle on a deal. Like they don't, no one knows what's really going to happen with the market. And you know, I think we're at a time in the market where we used to be able to see this far in front of our face. Now we can only see this far in front of our face. And so what you see on a, on a, a, a trend line is that builder sentiment has dropped off. You've seen starts and permits start to drop off. And it's just because builders are concerned with the market. They're investing time, which is money, as well as money and resources into a project that is going to be a longer haul than, you know, than other investment strategies. And with the risk in the market, they're going to want to slow down and cool down. And they don't know what's going to happen on the for sale market. They don't necessarily know what's going to happen on the rental side if they build for rent. And, and then at the same time, they don't really know what we lenders are gonna do at the end of their project if they wanna hold it and, and refinance it into things like that. So you're seeing all of those components tie into this decline, like steep decline in builder sentiment, which is starting to tie into you know less starts. Um, and so it's tough out there right now. Uh, you know, With that said, there's plenty of other strategies and models when you don't bring in the development phase you know, where you can, you know, go vertical and build and have a shorter life cycle. But again, just pricing is concerning. Most people do build not truly affordable or the higher end of the affordable market, or they build more in the higher end and luxury side because it just gives them the biggest bang for their buck. But that side of the market's also getting pretty hit pretty hard right now too. So unfortunately, there's just headwinds against flippers, many of the same against builders. You know, what I'll say is that you pointed this out, um, supply chains eased up, uh, you know, labor is still a challenge, but it's eased up. You know, the expectation is that those are actually going to get probably harder throughout this year for a number of reasons. Um, you know, the, the cost of materials for certain reasons. And then for on the labor front, unfortunately, if distress hits the market, there's just going to be a lot of contractors that unfortunately go out of business. And so that means there's less workforce, less reliable workforce having to you know, fire a GC on a project, which is a whole pain in the butt in and of itself, cost of time and significant money and, and things of that nature. And so um, you know, those are the things that uh, builders are looking at. But, but with that said, I do want to you know, at least throw a little bit of glass half, half full. To your point as well, Dalton, there's still such a shortage of new home products. So there's still going to be significant demand. And if you can buy land right, which is also another thing that makes it really hard for builders right now because the price of land has continued to skyrocket. It's been a great investment if you grabbed and held onto lands, you know, a number of years ago or even a couple of years ago till now. Um, so buying your land right and getting your land basis appropriately, you know, within the rest of the project costs is important. Um, 
but as long as you're just knowing what your numbers are and conservative with, you know, haircutting what today's values is and, you know, whether it's eight to 12 to six to 18 to 24 months out when you're going to finish your build and you're haircutting what you think a worst case scenario is, there's still plenty of profit. There's still always going to be demand, you know, but we're seeing it on the flip side. We're seeing it on the new construction side. Product is sitting out there on market for longer, uh, more price cuts and things of that nature. So there's still a lot of opportunity because of the sheer demand and shortage in, in, in housing. Um, but again, it's, it's headwinds and the bigger operators are going to be able to sustain it. They're, you know, maybe not with their current teams or infrastructure, but they have more infrastructure to weather the storms. They've gone through more of these you know, trial and error, uh, uh, trial by fire, um, you know, throughout the last number of years to get their operations right and humming and their costs down and, you know, how they manage projects and contractors and things like that. They'll still be able to produce, um, you know, the big builders are still out there gonna gonna do fine. But, you know, again, this is just sort of the trend in real estate investing. It's just gonna be a little hard. No, that's, that's a good uh, subheader for your for your title of the year, it's just going to be a little harder. There you go. But <laughs> look, hard is creates more opportunity for those that are passionate, focused, disciplined in what they want to do and achieve. And so that's where, again, like, you know, operators who have built good processes, built good teams, whether it's just a team of two or a team of five or a team of 50, you know, you, you have solace and faith in the fact that if you know the fundamentals of buying right, executing on a plan, making the right decisions and not getting too greedy, you know, there's still so much opportunity out there in either flipping or, or the building realm without a doubt. So. Yeah. It's like, be more conservative, be more cautious, do more due diligence. Uh, and it seems like if you operate with that mindset, you know, anytime there are, there's a distressed time, whether, you know, stock markets the same way, right? Like I'm, you know, red, 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 and I just keep buying because, you know, it's, it's the silver lining of it is, you know, there's there's opportunity and upside uh, as long as the whole thing doesn't collapse. And if it does, then we're all we're all screwed. Uh, but we're all then, it together. <laughs> bingo. Back to the housing piece. Uh, we've touched on the short term side of the fence, but let's transition to rental. Right. You've had rents increasing at a ridiculous clip even last year whenever you know 2022 when we started to get a drop in you know a deceleration in home price appreciation and then move to a flat and declining market depending on exactly where you are uh rents increased throughout last year what's what's your finger on the pulse for 2023 rents yeah i mean look i i think just because again there's also a shortage in rentership demands um you know rents overall generally speaking all markets nationwide i personally think are going to continue to increase um you know i think also you're seeing a lot of people especially first-time home buyers get squeezed out of being able to buy and so that's just going to continue to augment the demand that there's going to be in the rentership world um you know Look, my thesis or recommendation always for the last five years since I've been really diving extremely deep into real estate investing and learning from the likes of many operators who are just, you know, extremely good at actively doing it is, you know, in any pro forma for single family or for rental pro rent or for multifamily, you know, you should really only model and expect 3% growth in income. At the same time, you should expect 
at least then a 3% growth in expenses. Hence, inflation has shown us more than that. But, you know, look, if you're conservative in those estimates, you're going to be fine. I personally think, again, personally, so this means very little to many of you, but I do think rents will grow 2 to 4%, you know, and that's nor- like that's fairly normal, but still good growth, healthy growth, you know, 8, 7%, 8%, 9%, 12%, low, low mid-teens percent rental growth is, it, it's pretty obvious why it's happened, you know, because of supply and demand and rentership, but we can't expect that. You know, I, I, I think what's been talked about, but not focused about uh, enough is the, what, I, what people call, and I call the affordability crisis out there. You know, you have a number of people that uh, have taken on um, you know, housing expenses, aka let's call rents for this purpose, uh, higher than a uh, higher percentage of their income than they probably should be. And then, you know, incomes continue to increase. And there's been this whole, um, you know, shifting in the workforce, taking more and more new jobs and moving new quick, uh, more quickly and gaining more income. But again, unfortunately, as we just see some of the big blue chip companies laying off in some fairly large reduction in forces, People are going to lose jobs and have to take jobs with less income. It'll be even less affordable than it's already been in, in times past. And so, um, you know, that's the concern that I have is that there's going to be some affordability challenges of tenants throughout different pockets of the country for different pockets of reasons. Um, you know, and, and again, just back to no different than with flipping and, and with building, you know, um, operators who own just a small handful of rental properties, it's going to be really hard. Uh, to sustain, you know, holding on to the rental properties and not having to just say, "Hey, I, I can't, I can't deal with this anymore. This tenant won't pay me. I don't want to evict. I need to sell this." Um, you know, I think there's just going to be more of that for people that don't have this infrastructure or a larger portfolio of 20, 40, 60, 100 homes where the cash flows on those assets can cover the couple of deals that uh, are trouble, which you're always going to have in any, any realm of real estate investing. So. You know, I, I do think that it could be challenging for more of the, the smaller landlords. Um, but all in all, I mean, there's a reason why people uh, that are way smarter than me and organizations that have billions, if not trillions of dollars, are just going as deep as they can go in all things single family uh, rental cash flow investing properties. Like you look at the Blackstones of the world and things like that. I mean, it's just because there's so much belief in the product in the future. I just, we can't expect what we've had in the past years. And that's probably an obvious statement, uh, but I don't think you're going to see a material decline, although it'll feel like a material decline when you're not getting the either high single digits or low mid teens uh, increases in rents. It feels like we're dropping off, you know, no different than the housing market with values. It's like, we're not getting, you know, seven to 10 plus percent appreciation a year. And we're only going to get two or three across the nation. It feels like prices are going down, but reality, they're still technically going to go up if that's the case. So. Yeah, normal is healthy. Right? Like you said, having, you know, Austin is the stat that keeps popping up in my mind or something that I've memorized. And, you know, from May 2020 to 2021, 35% or so HPA. Right. So, like, so a metric like that is unhealthy. Yes, it's great if you already own property, but generally, like, whether it's a big upswing or a big downturn, that's unhealthy. Normal is healthy. Yeah, I mean, look, just real quick. I mean, you look at your boom cities, Austin, Phoenix, um, a number of places in Nevada, the ones that boomed at absorbent rates, which, you know, technically it's it's not illegitimate by any means. It's fully legitimate, obviously, you know, but they've also seen the biggest 
drops recently. I mean, Austin and Phoenix specifically are in two of the largest decreases of home values in the last six months uh, compared to other markets. And so what goes up must come down to some extent. And, you know, unfortunately, I, I say this and I hope it's not taken out of context, you know, because there's some just people that unfortunately get hurt in this scenario, buying at peak of market and then having it depreciate significantly. But like that is unfortunately healthy. Um, because of abnormal prices and, you know, there's just so many other factors that tie into it. But, you know, there has to be some of that. And unfortunately, look, the government's coming out there and saying, you know, fairly hawkishly, I think, that there's going to be more distress um, and to expect it. Um, and, you know, that doesn't bring anybody any happiness. Um, but it is, to your point, normal. All right, we've really covered the one to four unit side of the fence. So let's go big as we wrap up here. Uh, talk to me about multifamily. I feel like when, when COVID hit, we started to see a ton of new entrants into the multifamily space and, and not new investors, but folks who were uh, exposed on the one to four unit side with one to four unit rehabs, one to four unit rental properties. Uh, but a ton of folks I know who were squarely in that one to four you know, either added exposure to or exclusively went to multifamily. Uh, so knowing that that continues to be, and I feel like anywhere uh, you go, whether it's Greenville, South Carolina, where we're headquartered, uh, Atlanta's close by, when I go see my sister out in Dallas, I feel like anywhere I go, I see multifamily developments popping up like crazy, just build, build, build. So what's what's going on in the multifamily world? Yeah, no different than the others a lot, right? Yeah. <laughs> but all all directly up into the right too. I mean, look, first you bring last comment there of multifamily developments. I mean, they've been going at a pretty strong clip, arguably stronger than single family developments uh, and starts and builds. And they've been bringing a lot of product. Well, there's a lot of product coming online and going to come online of, of projects that have been started in recent past years. You know, but on existing hard assets, I mean, there's just so many factors that give tailwinds to multifamily. And it's been it's such an exciting space um, and, and something that, you know, again, is just a, a, it's a result of so many variables and factors that have benefited. And so, you know, first and foremost, um, there is a significant, extremely sizable amount of liquidity and desire to invest money to gain uh, yield and uh, larger scale real estate investment strategies, aka multifamily, I'm going to call it in this scenario, there's plenty of other commercial asset classes that this falls into, uh, that has been dumped into uh, our markets, whether it's capital markets or uh, local markets buying properties. And so there's, you know, multifamily has been so resilient. Um, and it's been such a tried and true asset class. And we have housing shortage by a significant number that yields people to you know, move towards the rentership side. And so that means they need places to live and there's no better way to build it in scale than multifamily or run it in scale than the multifamily. So this money's come in, which is you know, driven prices up. At the same time, you, know, you typically are valuing multifamily assets from an NOI basis and NOI is income minus expenses equals NOI. And what do we just talk about with the rise in rents over the last number of years, they've just gone up and up and up and up at accelerated paces. And so assets have yielded higher NOI. Uh, you have money flooring in, so there's so much demand for it, you know, which again, then you look at cap rates and things like that, just drives pricing up. So everybody that was in it 
you know, for ages from now is still in it, has made a killing over the last year or last number of years. People who are new entrants to multifamily operating, whether they just got into it, you know, first off, or they graduated, they graduated from single family to multifamily. They've made a killing in multifamily over the last number of years. They've grown their portfolios uh, significantly. It's, 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 you know, a lot of people move to multifamily from single family because they find economies of scale. Um, you know, and you can build out your infrastructure and if they wanted to buy a bunch of scattered site, single family rentals, well, why wouldn't I just buy one property with all those, what was scattered site, which is much harder to manage, much harder to do maintenance on, uh, much harder to do everything on rather than put it all in a central location. Um, you know, people have uh, been just gravitated to this as a result. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's just been such a great investment class for these reasons and many others. And it's caused there to be what I call the dreaded F word, which is not what you're thinking, but frothy. It's been extremely frothy uh, until somewhat recently. It's still very frothy because of the amount of capital that's, on the, that's in the game and on the sidelines trying to get in the game. Um, but what we started to see is over this last year and specifically the second half, the gap between a buyer's expectation and a seller's expectation on what the price is of a multifamily asset has just gone like this. You know, it was like this because honestly, a big component was debt was so cheap. And so when money was frothy, well, if you can tie, you know, people typically buy multifamily to hold it as a, a cash flowing asset, which means they're going to hold it for a while with typically permanent debt once it's stabilized. Well, when rates are significantly low and agencies are lending, you know, 3%, 4% and, and things of that nature, you can pay more for an asset because your yield from a cash flow perspective your cash and cash returns are going to be great. But when debt goes up, rates go up, you know, you lose your cash flow and then you lose your, you know, you, you lose your ability to get the returns that you wanted. So, you know, that's where buyers felt that first because rates went up and leverage came down. They got to put more money and, and pay more, uh, more money in equity and they pay more money for debt. So they have to offer lower prices. And then sellers are out there like, nah, like we're still in this four cap environment. Like you should be paying this four cap. And, so there's then this gap. And so what we've seen and, and what you see across the market is like it's taken transactions longer. You see people backing out of contracts more. You're starting to see less bids. You're seeing starting to see more you know, price drops. Um, no different than you're seeing on the single family side. But, you know, things have started to really move. A, 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 I said things have started to move a little bit. Um, that gap of buyers and sellers expectation is is shrunk just because now reality is punching every everybody in the face and sellers, you know, are finally knocked off their high horse a little bit. But again, there's still so much money that wants to invest in it. it's such a tried and true investment class. The fundamentals of supply and demand on the rentership side is so strong that I mean it I don't there's not going to be a reckoning in all things multifamily because of those items. It's still a great investment class. You know, I think if you're not able to operate on any value add plans that you had, you know, you really need to type, tighten up your business plan and operations and work through that quickly, you know, because we are going to get back to some of the normalcy that, you know, the age old investors are used to, which is, you know, be harder to lease, uh, lease at the rents that you want. Um, you're having to deal with turnover of tenants. You're having to deal with more delinquency and rent payments and things, that, you know, things of that nature. You're dealing with more loss to lease because rents aren't just continuing going up and up and up and up and up in every market. You got to give concessions to get people in the door. You know, so it's it's no different than what we just ended with a minute ago or a couple minutes ago. It, it's getting back to normal. 
Um, but still things are thriving. And again, the outlook in multifamily is extremely strong. It's just going to be a little bit of a new normal in the what the heck is going to happen up upcoming world. Beautiful. A wonderful blow by blow of what we're looking at for this year. And I'm going to challenge you here uh, as we wrap up. You and I are both wonderfully uh, blessed with the gift of gab, right? I think uh, if you put us in a room full of people and say talk for eight hours, we would uh, we'd do a good stretch and get after it and have no trouble and love every minute of it. So I'm going to, as, as I do just that right now. Uh, so I want to challenge you. Give me a sentence that describes how you feel about 2023. Oh, well, well, I buy time to think of that really quickly. You know, since you compared us together, I again, just want to thank you for who you are and, and the relationship and friendship that we have. And I want the world to know that we have had this hashtag that we've never used before. Maybe we can pop it on screen or something. And so our hashtag for the combo of you and I, which I think is a deadly duo, is beauty and the beast. And we'll let the <laughs> audience figure out who's the beauty and who's the beast. But typically beauty comes with blonde hair and not uh, brunette. So we'll, we'll, let, we'll let the audience make that decision. You know, but one sentence for 2023 is, you know, don't let emotions get to you too much. Stay the course, focus on the tried and true, be disciplined still look to invest. You just got to be sharper and smarter. And you gave me the subline earlier. It's just going to be a little bit harder. And that all goes back to, again, you don't need to come up with these really creative ways to get through things. Focus on the fundamentals now more than ever. It's going to be more evident and important that you buy right, that you have a good and sound business plan. If you're doing construction, then you're really you know, targeting a, a conservative estimate on what the budget's going to be. You know, rents you need to be conservative on, uh, ARV expected uh, completion value needs to be a little bit more conservative. You know, just follow the main principles that have been tried and true and tested over time. Um, and that's sort of the guidance that I have. So that is a long sentence and period right there. So I cheated a little bit, but uh, that's what I got. I, I know if I ask for a sentence, I get a paragraph, which is perfectly good. I, I, I know. Uh, hey. Uh, thank you so much, not only for jumping on this podcast, but I, I report up to you. I've reported to you for the past year uh, and, and have enjoyed so much of it. I, I've learned an incredible amount from you. Uh, we, we, I think, are so complimentary in that we have a lot of great similarities and a lot of wonderful differences that you know, just allow me to learn and grow personally and professionally from you so much. And at the end of the day, that's uh, a huge driver for me, why I show up. It's just learning, growing, developing so I can be more effective. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I can't thank you enough for your friendship, for your mentorship, uh, everything over the last year. And uh, yeah, super deeply appreciative for, for your friendship. Hey, you, you don't thank me, man. You know, look, um, it is more than right back at you. And again, as I start off, we just appreciate what you do in all realms. First and foremost, as a dear friend of mine, uh, but for our Lima One community, for private lending community, for real estate investing community, uh, you truly are, you know, uh, not only a company man, but a go-giver. Um, and I know that's why we relate is we just really want to partner. So you said reporting, you know, whatever. It's not reporting. I just thank you for your partnership because that's, you know, how we look at this um, as we continue to learn on how, how we lead uh, as students of it. And uh, we, we couldn't do this without our team. And I sure as heck couldn't do this without you, my man. So I, I thank you as well. 
And uh, again, it's an honor to be a, a part of Real Estate of Things here because this is such a great thing. And man, lots of episodes, lots of content. So, uh, you know, hopefully people get to this episode and this part of it after all the other good stuff that you had over 50, 60 plus episodes, man. So congrats on that. And we appreciate what you do. Thank you, my guy. Much love. Thanks again for jumping on. Happy investing, everybody. Beautiful. Thank you all for listening. Take care. Are you a real estate investor looking for the right lender that can finance all your deals and help you scale? Lima One Capital has the best suite of loan products in the industry bar none. Whether that's fix and flips, fix and holds, building new construction, or buying rental properties, they have incredible financing solutions for it all. A reliable, common-sense lender is one of the most important parts of your investment team, and that's exactly what you get with Lima One. Let Lima One Capital show you how they've helped thousands of real estate investors scale and increase their wealth. Check out LimaOne.com or call 800-259-0595 to speak with a consultant in preparation for your next project. Thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate of Things podcast. Subscribe and tune in weekly for new content from the industry's best while we continue to unpack the nuances of this dynamic market. Follow us across social media for additional insights and analysis on the topics covered in each episode. And remember to rate, review, and share the show.